Welcome back to Beholder to No One, a TTRPG podcast. Today I am here with James Wallace. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, this is absolutely my pleasure. Um, we're going to talk about how to make TTRPG games, but also like how to make characters, a little bit of both. Probably just step on a bunch of topics in between those things and talk about some of the things that you've made. Mm-hmm. As well as some, I believe there is, was there not something that is coming out soon? I, I have a book out, uh, not an RPG book. It's a book about board games coming out in the US and Canada in March. It just launched in the UK just before Christmas. It's called Everybody Wins, and it's about the rise of modern tabletop games over the last 40, 45 years, nice. focusing primarily on on European board games. But it talks about CCGs a bit. It talks about RPGs a bit. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of stuff in there. So I'm, I'm here to plug that. Though <laughs> I started off as an RPG designer, RPGs are still my first love, uh, and it's what I know best. And honestly, there's a lot of tabletop games that ha- are in board game form now. Like For mm. the Queen, for example, is a great one where it's a card game, which is a card game that you draw a random queen and then you draw prompts and you slowly go around the table to learn how your new character that you're making up on the spot in this jamless game is interacting responding to the queen's prompts and then at the end you decide do you protect the queen or do you go against her and it's, it's a really fun concept but yeah. there's a lot more of those now where it's like there are right up to stuff like gloomhaven which is basically mm-hmm. you know original dnd in in a 10 kilogram box full of stuff and it's yeah. it's actually it's more like diablo what we're playing diablo on a very very slow pc except it's a board game loads i mean yeah. it's a brilliant brilliant game don't don't let me uh, don't get me wrong but you mentioned for the for the queen my first card game back in this is going to date me 1993 it came out is a game called once upon a time and it's a storytelling card game where you cooperatively tell a fairy tale but everyone has a different ending and you win by guiding the story around to your ending so that you can play your ending card successfully but you have to play out all the other cards in your hand and as you do to do so players can jump in and interrupt you go you played the sword i haven't interrupt any item card i take over the story and it's, it's fast and silly so yeah these kind and we we were not the first storytelling card game there were others before before we did that yeah so yeah it's been around for a while but it seems to really hit a, a high point recently the first one i've ever played i believe was tapestry which is an indie game that was made by matthew gravelin and it's a mint tin game But there's just little cards that you have that look like dominoes of sorts. And there's two prompts, one on each side. And you just play those cards off of each other to create your characters with flaws and and personality and everything. But also to make relationship connections, but also to make your story. And it's really fun. I adore the game. It went to weird places. I, I bet. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic game. For what I remember, it started with us being a cult that made were the inventors of sandwiches and ended up with <laughs> us destroying the alien gods, I believe. You'll have to go listen to the episode. It's on it's on the podcast if anybody wants to go hear it. I will I will do that. I've had games of microscope that go a bit like that, but not an actual card game. The earliest one I know of is a game called Dark Cults, which is almost forgotten now. Created by the Raman Brothers, R-A-H-M-A-N. They're best known for design Divine Right, which was an early TSR board game. But Dark mm-hmm. Cults is is basically the short story of collaboratively telling an HP Lovecraft short story. Very nice. And it's played either in pairs or in teams. One 
team or side is is trying to keep the character alive and the other team is trying to kill them and you play cards alternately and it's it's a really clever concept that just gets bogged down in slightly too many rules but it creates a lot of atmosphere really really smart stuff and that i think was about 1986 so uh this this stuff goes back away and there's a couple of games historians sorry this is a pet subject of mine you're fine who have traced this stuff back to 16th century italy not card games as such but people playing narrative games mm-hmm. where you create characters and you tell their stories and the cat stories kind of interlink and stuff like that and because you know we didn't have actual plays back then and no one thought enough about these games to actually write down the rules all we have is kind of one paragraph descriptions of what the game was and and very loosely you know almost back cover blurb that kind of thing that's it, right. it, they weren't published they were just they were entirely oral they were spoken so the rules were transmitted just by telling other people how to play it's like have you heard of this one game? No, but here, how here's how you play, it, and then pass it along, and it's like telephone. The game slowly, <laughs> and it and it changes. And yes, I mean there was there was um, stuff going on in the French courts. I, th- I think in the I'm going to get the dates wrong. Wouldn't be the 1800s because they'd had the revolution by then. But people love to tell stories and they love to play games, and those things have just naturally intersected all the way through history. And it's a shame that we don't actually have the games th- themselves. Most of them. Somebody should just like go back in time, invent a time machine, go back in time, figure out the games, bring them back, mm. and then we can have a book called Games Through History that's from actual histor- historians visiting time traveling, going to time travel. That's I, what I we're going to th- do with technology. Yes, that would absolutely be the first thing I would do with a time machine. Uh, go back go in back. time to find Come out back. where games are played. Kickstart a slim book of uh, 16th century Italian narrative games. Maybe make $750 out of it. On all that money you had to spend on the time machine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no illusions about how many people out there are interested in this stuff. Apart from I, I personally would be, and I'm not really big into history, but that would be fun to try out all these little games. But I also feel it'd be like, I don't remember the name of the book, but there's this cookbook that's like 100 plus years old. And some of the recipes are like a paragraph, but it's like a full blown recipe. But it's so confusing because there's so many shorthand words or like they'll use like one word to describe exactly what you're supposed to do. Where a recipe nowadays would like give you all the steps, 15 steps it takes to do that. So you have to like go look up all of the terminology while you're doing it. And it becomes like a 15 page recipe. And there's a show called Sorted that actually has it's a cooking channel, cooking channel, and they actually do a challenge where they have to try to figure it out on their <laughs> own without any prompting or like be able to research in their timed, of course, because why not? But wow. I feel like that would have to be that would be the same situation because there'd be so many words that don't translate properly to modern day. And you're just like, what the hell does that word mean? And yes. you'd have what to are, go what to are the they talking about here? Yeah. Yes, I think you would need the time machine to go back and ask them what they what they meant. So like when you say this word, <laughs> we mean we this is a totally different word for us. Yes. What do I'm you not gonna tell you what it is because I don't wanna ruin how history works but um what does it mean for you <laughs> oh oh thank god that's okay. such a different oh, oh it's hit points okay got it um yeah perfect no, i mean these perfect. were these were incredibly simple games they didn't have what we would understand as game mechanics they were just kind of there was a structure there was a way you know you would take over the story at this point you, you know rather yeah. than 
roll a dice at this point. I don't, they weren't, as far as I know, they were diceless uh, or teetotumless. It used to be, certainly in, in Britain, that nice families didn't have dice in the house because dice were for gambling. So, and this would be the, uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s. So mm-hmm. they used teetotums instead, which looked like dreidels. They're little spinning, spinning tops, basically, mm-hmm. with six sides, which do exactly the same thing as a dice, but they're not dice. And therefore, you know, they're so nice. there's, no, there's yeah. no social, you know, dark cloud hanging over them. I mean, you could gamble with coins, like <laughs> flip a coin. Yeah. I think there's a there's a famous case of somebody who lost some British aristocrat who lost his fortune gambling on which of two raindrops would be the first to get down a pane of glass. Yeah, it's that's all I, mean, I know yeah, of the you anecdote. Can, you can gamble on anything, honestly. Oh yeah. Like literally the other day I jokingly said so my editor he tends to like if I say like, hey, delete can you just delete all of that? And I'll he'll like jokingly take us a video of him highlighting the entire thing and then deleting it and then post it on the internet and i said something like that and then i was like 10 bucks that he just videoed this gave a thumbs up and posted it on the internet (laughs) (laughs) and he did and it was great yeah but anyway i think gmless games are a lot of fun and it's it's interesting to know that they've been around for a while or like games in general have been along for the storytelling i guess would be the best yes. way to word it and i know that like you could consider storytelling like even when you do like around the campfire type of things where someone like is telling a story and then someone's like oh but then and then like they jump in and mm. at the same time and that could also be the same concept um but in tabletop games, I like the fact that a lot of them have more some some mechanics to kind of like usher you in the right direction, or at least the same direction, so you're all on the same yes. page. Yeah, so everyone everyone knows what you're doing. Everyone knows the genre and the the setting and kind of yeah. where the boundaries lie. So you don't suddenly go off and kill alien gods in the middle of a game about Jane Austen. Yeah, you know, I mean, it happened once. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and, and and it also is like. It's nice to it's nice to know like okay this game is going to be a horror esque game like we expect terror we expect some jump type of mechanics going on we expect there to be like potential like death in the game but like we also have these safety tools in measure which is fantastic use your safety tools people and that way everybody's having fun at the game and you don't have to go to someone who's like for example, if I was at a table with somebody else who's into horror, I'm not a huge horror fan. I love it in tabletop games, but I'm not like a movie horror fan. Mm. So there are always going to be people who can do something way scarier than I could ever possibly imagine. And if I was at the table and didn't have like, hey, these are the things that I don't want to do. And they just like jump to this extreme, like I'm talking, oh, there's a ghost and they're like brutally murder. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. How, it's, how do I mean, we go from A to B? <laughs> Yes, it's it's weird, and the whole idea of session zero and and the X card and all the rest of it, and these are comparatively recent innovations, and I think they add so much to the game because everyone that a game has to be a safe space. Mm-hmm. There's this whole theory that comes out originally of from Johan Huizinger, uh, the a Dutch historian who was the first person to write seriously about games back in 1938. Actually, mostly he was writing about play, but in a lot of European languages, the word for play and the word for games are basically the same word. So mostly he's writing about play, but he writes about games as, as well. And he uh, was the first person to talk about the theory of the magic circle, because he was also very into rituals and sacred spaces and writing about those. Mm-hmm. And he said, 
And the idea of the magic circle, and I talk about this way too much, is that basically when you form a, when you start playing a game with people, it's as if a, a consensual bubble of unreality forms around you. And nobody, you know, you don't invoke a ritual to create it or anything. It just, it's just there. And what happens inside the bubble is safe because mm. it's a game. And this is, you know, this comes out of board games and traditional games. But it happens in role-playing games as well. But it is possible to burst that bubble and or shatter it. In board games, diplomacy is the famous one for shattering the magic circle, for breaking it. Because when you get betrayed in a game of diplomacy, and you will, because really that's the point, but you're not expecting who's going to betray you or when. I've seen friendships disintegrate over games of diplomacy. My parents-in-law were career diplomats in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And this is a slightly long anecdote. And so normally, embassy socializing in the evenings, you go around to each other's embassies, big boozy parties and stuff. It's the Middle East. Dry, uh, they were on, I think they were in Saudi Arabia at the time. It's a dry country. So there wasn't much drinking. And instead, they'd go around to each other's residences and generally they'd play bridge. There was an awful lot of bridge being bridge circles, bridge tournaments. And one time they go around to the Russian ambassador's residence and he produces a copy of Diplomacy. Is diplomats play diplomacy? Is good joke. And they sit down and they play it. And it's not a short game and it's quite complicated, but it's they're intelligent people. Halfway through the game, the Russian ambassador and his wife have a stand-up screaming argument across the table about something that one of them has done in the game. She storms out. Three months later, they're divorced. And I tend to suspect that the bloom was off the rose in that relationship already, but this the, the, game final straw. <laughs> the game seems to have been the final straw. And that's breaking the magic circle. So when it happens, it's particularly raw because you feel you're in a safe space because you're playing a game, because the great understanding is that games are safe. So the magic circle is, is a really interesting concept, and it happens in video games as well. In fact, most of the work on the magic circle is being done by video game scholars and LARP scholars. Actually, Nordic LARP scholars have written an awful lot about the magic circle um, and really developed the theory of it and you know, psychologically how it works and things like that. Oh, yeah, 100%. There's been games that I've played in that had players that made me uncomfortable. And I was like, I mean, thankfully, I know that other tables exist and that I can find another game. So like, I've been playing for 20 years now. So I know that a bad person at a table doesn't mean a bad game overall for the rest of my life. But if my first game ever was something Mm -hmm. where someone is like, pushing or like being inappropriate or being rude or saying things that make me uncomfortable or not taking no for an answer I very much would have been uh like turned away from playing the games period when I was brand new because Mm. all I would know is like is this just the norm is this how everybody acts when it's not I mean in 20 years I probably played with like less than 10 bad people that I yeah. will never play with again. And then yeah. like maybe a dozen people that I just, they were meh. Not like they were bad players, just like not my cup of tea. Yes. Um, but, which is the other thing. Yes, but we're here to enjoy ourselves. Games are intrinsically fun. They have to be fun or they're not not, not actually games. That's something else that Hoosinger said. Yeah. And I'm in the enormously privileged position. You know, I'm a middle-aged white man. I wasn't a middle-aged white man when I started role-playing. I was a teenaged white man. But at the same time, that gives me a certain level of, I'm not going to say invulnerability, but less vulnerability. You know, it's um, privilege. Um, So 
I've had fewer bad experiences, but I have had, you know, I have had them and they're, they're horrible. You don't want to go back to certainly that game, that group, sometimes even that venue. There's an intimacy to role-playing games. There's a, a sense that, you know, because we're inhabiting these characters, we're, we're doing things, we, we are in, you know, certainly in a lot of modern games, in story games, more indie games, the, mm. the emotions within the game are quite raw. Uh, you don't want anything that's going to to trample on top of that. I've mentioned the the Nordics, uh, the Nordic LARP people. They're the people who really crystallise the whole idea of bleed when thing you know emotions transfer between things that's, things that's going on, things that are going on in the game, and things that are going on in in your real life. Ironically, um, just had a, a episode like in January related to bleed at the time of recording it was like two recordings ago but (laughs) it was released in january about character bleed and learning about that and like being careful of how much you put of yourself into your character because some of us me have an issue with putting a lot of themselves in their characters and then when something happens it like bleeds very badly into reality so it's like finding that separation so that you can still have like fun but not like if something bad happens to a character who's very much like you, it doesn't feel like it's happening to you in reality. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, this stuff is, is really important. And, you know, the, the Nordics, there's a fantastic book called Nordic LARP, uh, which won the Diana Jones Award probably about 20 years ago now. Good Lord, I'm old. And No, not 20 years ago, probably about 10 or 12 years ago. The award itself is only 22 years old. Uh, I know that because I set it up. Uh, exit footnote. So Nordic LARP, I think you can get as a free download legally on, on the internet. And it's extraordinary. And it just documents basically the first few steps of, or the first few years of Nordic LARP, which is much more intense than a lot of Western LARPs. Mm-hmm. They went straight for the kind of the emotional jugular. And in a couple of cases, and they're quite frank about this in the book, they, they got it badly wrong. There was one, they, they basically, it was set in a small town, I think, in Ohio, and, you know, you turn up and there's characters and stuff like that, and the character interplay, you know, probably for a few hours, and you get radio broadcasts of heightening tensions. That was it. It was during the Cuban, set during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting radio updates, and then the sirens go off, and everyone, you know, goes to the town hall where there's a basement that's been set up as a, a kind of a fallout shelter and stuff like that. And there's big cardboard boxes, as I understand it, big cardboard boxes labeled food supplies and stuff like that wasn't food supplies mostly it was subwoofers and then they basically went boom and uh you know that was that the bomb had fallen and then they locked the doors and left the people in there for a number of hours and people came out with ptsd or something very close to it i can imagine yeah yeah it's i mean on one level i i respect the ambition of something like that on another really did you think people were not going to come out of that experience changed in a bad way but they learned the lesson really fast and and you know uh, the book goes into this and other seemingly extraordinary larps and that talks a great deal about bleed and and you know how ways of dealing with bleed fantastic read i recommend it very highly that actually reminds me of something. It's not related to LARPing or tabletop games, but it's related to the psychological 
um, aspects of some testing in experiments that have been done in the past that they didn't realize were experiments. If I'm remembering correctly, it's been a while since I read the study. Some were randomly pulled to be guards and some were randomly pulled to be prisoners. And they were allowed to do whatever they wanted within the rules of the guidelines to uh, the, for the guards to treat the prisoners as if they were prisoners. The power struggle became so bad that the prisoners literally, like the students literally felt like prisoners and like revolted. Somebody went on like a hunger strike at one point because it was like a multi-day process. People ended up with PTSD because of this. The power, the power hunger of the people who were the guards became a problem. I'm trying to, I've, I've read about this. I'm trying to remember what it was called. I don't remember uh, what it was called. It was the Stanford Prison Experiment. That's the one, 1971. Yes. I'm not brilliant. I am Googling as we speak. Google is the best. It is. Yes. I mean, it, it just a hugely badly run, badly constructed experiment. Uh, and people are still writing about it today. But yeah, yes. that and, and things like the Milgram experiment as well, which is the one where they, a test subject was told to give someone increasingly strong electric shocks. I read that one too, yeah. They were not actually giving anyone electric shocks. Yeah, they but just heard again, someone playing, screaming, and the other side begging for mercy. And like, if they were yes. told by a doctor to push the button, no, push the button, they got it wrong. How many of them would actually still push the button because authority figures told them to? And I'm like, yeah, hi, this is a little too close for home. I was doing some research for a novel, and I'm just like, oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. No, it's it's fascinating stuff. But again, you know, you get some interesting results as a PhD student, and you know, you write up your PhD, but with no thought about how has this affected the people you would, you know, not the people getting electric shots, but the people pressing the button. How did they feel about themselves after mm -hmm. that? How did it change them? And it's this element of the magic circle. You're entering an area of unreality. This, this, you know. And there's an authority figure, and you're doing things that you think you're told are going to be safe. You're told everything is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have I know people who have been profoundly changed in a good way by playing role-playing games. And there's increasing mm -hmm. numbers of, of people using RPGs as a, in therapeutic practice. Yep. I certainly, I was a very introverted child. I was brought up in mostly in the middle of nowhere. My parents lived two miles from the nearest village there were no other kids my own age I didn't really have I didn't have any friends so I used RPGs when I came across them as a teenager so basically as a way of learning social skills and rehearsing social skills and just rehearsing talking to people even if those people were goblins or you know didn't really exist and I've seen enormously repressed people come out of their shell I've seen a number of of people using it almost as an experimental space for a sense of who they are as, as personalities, on a, a very minor level, I played a lot of clerics as a teenager and in my early 20s. And as a way of exploring faith and my, my thoughts about it and ended up, as a, you know, strong atheist. But, you know, people also who explore gender identities with mm -hmm. it as well. It is not a coincidence that there is such a strong trans community within gaming and games design. Um, yeah, I think sexuality is another one that's strongly explored, which I've talked we've talked about on the show before as well. The other, like I've had the same experience with uh, that you had with learning how to become out of my shell through tabletop games because I'm very much an introvert. I'm still an introvert. Hmm. I am an extrovert online, and I'm an extrovert in like podcasting streaming form because I'm in like a safe environment that I know I can be extroverted in. But when it comes to like large social gatherings, I'm still very much an introvert. But 
because of playing the games, I was able to learn how to, I was pushed into circumstances that I wasn't comfortable with in reality and forced like forced ish, but like within my own comfortability to deal with the consequences of my character's actions by trying to talk my way through them or like convince somebody of something so that I could save our friend. And like there was consequences that actually had my actions had consequences in games. And then I had to talk my way through them and like try to convince them and like be hyper aware as well. In some games, depending on the GM, you're depending on what you say could go very, very poorly for you. So like, there are some games that I've played where it mattered how you worded things and it mattered if you like treated the particular person with respect because the dice roll didn't matter. It didn't matter how well you rolled. If you were disrespectful, like that person would still like turn on you. So like Shadowrun, for example, mm. you never mess with the dragon. Like rule number one, don't fuck with the dragon. Um, so when you first talk to a dragon and you see one of your allies start questioning them and you're like, oh, no, I'm not with him. It's been wonderful meeting you. Uh, lovely. Have a lovely day. Uh, we will do the job for you. Have a great day. We'll see you later. Bye. No, we're leaving. No, you're staying. Okay, well, we're, we're all going. And the guy stayed and kept questioning. And yeah, we ended up getting a really pretty statue at our house <laughs> of, of a very really lifelike version of this man. And none of us rolled high enough to know any better. So we're all like, this is a really good statue. <laughs> he was petrified. Yeah, wow. Yes, it's the designer S. John Ross def, uh, draws a distinction between what he calls high trust and low trust games. You know, whether the First of all, whether the GM trusts the players to stay within the bounds of genre and whether the players trust the GM to play fair, whether essentially you're collaborating or whether there's that combative element that you get in original D&D and a lot of the OSR games, where it's almost GM versus players. The dungeon and the, the adventure is almost a competition for the players to win or lose. I am really bad at that. <laughs> I like my players to win. I want them to finish. I want them, you know, I'm telling a story. A story is no fun unless it has an ending. I could never work for Netflix and cut off a, a series after a season, leaving, leaving it on a cliffhanger. And it's oh, like, I nope, you're <laughs> never going to find out whatever happens now because we've taken away our funding. I want my team to players to win but i get disappointed when i don't get to play with my cool shiny toys mm, yes i'm like but but i didn't get to use the cool thing that was going to kill you <laughs> like <laughs> i wanted to play like i want you to win but i want you to win but think you're gonna lose <laughs> like yeah. it's real close yes i was playing some um Morkborg. is it Murkburg? I, i'm not quite sure how the accents are supposed to go last night and there's a, a bit where there's you know i won't blow it because it's the scenario in the book but there's a clever bit where you've got to do a thing with a statue and i was like oh i bet they spend 10 15 minutes thinking about this and they were like oh no okay so there's this that's what we have to do bang straight through and it's oh that's disappointing i wanted you to be challenged by that yeah i didn't want you to lose i wanted you to get past it but i wanted the challenge and i wanted them to feel smart rather yeah. than just blow straight past it but then that's that's role-playing. If the GM's not surprised from time to time, it's not working right. I remember there was a game where I had a scenario, it was a trap, where the players touched a door handle and were teleported to a dungeon. And it was a treasure room with a dragon that mm -hmm. was meant to be a deadly challenge rating for all five of the players. Wow. Two players got teleported, and then someone decided to dispel magic on the door handle. Oh, no. Because they thought that would bring them back. 
but it no. didn't. So we left on the cliffhanger of two players looking up to see a red dragon breathing down their neck. And I said, just in case, you should prepare characters for next week. Just in case. If these two motherfuckers didn't utterly destroy my dragon in like three rounds. Oh, no. I'd say, oh, no. But I mean, if they did it in a really smart, intelligent way, rather than just lucky die rolls. It was a mix of both. Mm -hmm. But like literally the next session was a grand total of 60 seconds in game. Because... We were in rounds, and that's how I know 60 seconds. We didn't hit the 10, we hit 60 seconds and 10 rounds total. And the other players found their way around, got in a different fight with the big boss lady, knocked them out one in one freaking hit with eye bite, which annoyed me. Managed to get in there after the dragon has already been killed after three rounds, 18 seconds, and steal everything and then plane shift out of there. And I'm like, I hate all of you. I hate you all so much right now. I mean, congratulations, that was smart, but I hate you. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I love it when players are smart, but I like it when they've, there's an element of them working for it as well. And it's, players being smart, players getting lucky die rolls, the combination of the two is terrific. Just lucky die rolls, I find really annoying. It's like, you know, you, you didn't actually put the effort in. On, on that one it's this it wasn't you this was just this was blind luck yeah i, di- I did get to curse one of them so I, I felt better oh okay so they didn't get out scot-free well also um, if we would have kept going they eventually the woman they didn't kill would have woken up and just like she could still cast magic so she would have cast like scry on the staff that they stole and found uh, them and would have been able to <laughs> kill them later and but the the one person put a ring on that they found and it had a soul in it that was like a bloodthirsty soul and it was it was called the ring of jack ripper <laughs> oh, wow and the ring like demanded blood so it's like you need to kill someone mm. you should kill all your friends <laughs> like i just slowly egged him on fantastic Hello. Sorry for the interruption here, but I wanted to give you a advertisement for one of our friends in the tabletop community. Please give it a listen and go check them out. What happens when you get a bunch of truly nerdy scientists together and force them to play tabletop role-playing games? You might be surprised. Nature Check is a TTRPG channel you can find on Twitch, YouTube, and podcast apps everywhere. Join the fun as the cast explores fantasy worlds and connects your favorite gaming moments to real-life science. If you like TTRPGs, ridiculous jokes, and nerdy fun facts, then Nature Check is the show for you. Now, back to the show. This is a complete digression, but the ring reminded me. I used to run Hogshead Publishing, for those who are still wondering who the hell I am and why I'm on this, this podcast. Hogshead Publishing was big in the 90s. We were the first British role-playing company to to succeed since Games Workshop had got out of role-playing in 91, 92. And we did Warhammer Fantasy role-play, and we did Slay Industries, and we did the New Style games, which were the first story games, really, the first GM-less, single-session, rules-light, story-heavy games. But one game that we had the license to, and for all kinds of stupid logistical reasons we never published, was a French thing called Bloodlust, uh, which is a brilliant name. And it was basically adventurers and their magic weapons. And the magic weapons are all intelligent because they are literally incarnate gods. So you pick up a magic weapon. It doesn't possess you, but it starts having a conversation with you, and uh, it will convince you of things that you need to do. So you're playing both the character and the magic weapon. Characters are squishy. Characters have adventures. It is the weapons that have the campaigns. 
And there are certain things they are terrified of, like being dropped into the ocean, which is, you know, it's it's death, but it's undeath. Yeah. Fantastic game, really smart. I don't know if it's ever come out in English, but it was so clever. Um, French designer called Croc, who did a number of other really, really smart games in the, in the 90s and uh, late 80s, I think, it was one of the founders of, of Asmodee, uh, now the largest games distributor in the world. I don't know at what point... He, he left the company and sold his shares. Um, hopefully the right moment. They, they changed hands uh, last year for 2.75 billion euros. They were sold to the Embracer Group in Sweden. A lot of money. I used, I used to work for Asmodee as well. That's a lot of money. There is a lot of money in games. I mean, it's... Um, I remember back in the day thinking, wow, TSR, this, this major company, you know, back in the 80s, you, you'd look, oh, you, they must have so much money. No, not knowing that they were teetering on the edge of bankruptcy at almost all, mo- all times. And now, again, last year, they announced the Dungeons & Dragons brand on its own, not counting magic. Just D&D made a billion dollars last year. That's it, extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary, but also kind of frustrating to see because, like, that money does not trinkle, trinkle down to the people that are trying to work inside of the world of no. the RPGs. I've learned this the hard way as an attempted freelancer for the last year and a half. And it works for some people, but it's very hard. It's it's a tough and, and badly paying world. And I've, I've been on both sides of the counter. I started off as a freelance for magazines and then for publishers back in the days when there were a good number of games magazines to freelance for. I read a number of supplements for a number of publishers, and then I became a publisher. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're not TSR, if you're not one of the really big ones, then the margins are really thin. It's It costs an awful lot to put a role-playing book together, particularly with the quantity of artwork and the quantity of cartography that, that these things demand. You know, you have to produce a good-looking book these days if it's going to sell in respectable numbers. And the numbers are, are way down from where they were in the 90s. Yeah, there was actually a book recently that came out called Defiant RPG. And it's a Swedish book. And all of their artwork, I was really impressed with this, actually. All of their artwork is free art from like Pixbay and stuff like that. Wow. That went through a filter. Every single piece of their art in the entire book, it does not look like it was done like this. They all look like they match because they went through the same filter and like they photoshopped it and put it through that filter. But it was all free art. And they, they put that in the book saying all of the art in this book is free found wow. on this website. And that was a really clever way to like help avoid costs when they had like a 300 page book that they needed to get art for. And it's a fantastic game. I haven't gotten to play a full game of it yet, but it's a game where you play as like the bloodline of powerful beings like Leviathans, angels, devas, oh, and wow. demons, I think. I don't remember the last one. And you are all blue bloods, so you are all very powerful beings, but it has that City of Mist vibe where like the humans in the world don't know that this part of the world exists. Mm-hmm. And they play on... They play on a lot of things like family and in relationships and politics. And there's cards that you have to draw to, and make up all those things. But you can play some very mature rated type of things. So when we were going to play it, originally we were going to do a podcast for it. We were going to do a like more mature rated story, but focus on like the positivity of things like sex work and polyamory and and like mm-hmm. that type of community and stuff like that. And it gave you it gave you a great opportunity to do that and like actually discuss those things in a healthy, safe place. So I think that game would be a lot of fun, especially if you're into games with political intrigue. 
because yeah. everybody has to work together as a team and the houses are all like working against each other as well where most houses in the game are based off of hierarchy the character that i was going to play was the house of something that was like wolves and they were based off strong whoever the strongest was the one in charge so it didn't matter if you were the oldest if you were the strongest not necessarily by physical force just like in willpower then you were the one in charge of the of the family at the time so i really liked playing on that it's aspect. it's that's a really smart mechanic. Did you ever come across the Amber role playing game? Mm-hmm. It's called Amber Diceless Roleplay, based on the the Chronicles of Amber novels by Roger Zelazny, which are about this this basically this family of siblings who all hate each other, but all of whom have the power to walk what they call the pattern, which basically allows them to walk between parallel universes. So you're in a you're in a world where it's raining, and you'd rather be in a version of the world where it's sunny. You can just walk to it, and much much more powerful shifts than than that as well. It's created by Eric Wujic, veteran games designer, best known for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role playing game, which was a a huge hit back in the day of of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I it was the TMNT, the role playing game, was the first product to license the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book. Before the TV series, before any of that at all, they just it happened across this black and white comic and went, this looks cool, let's do a role-playing game. Did it. Then the whole thing exploded and they became very rich. It was uh, Palladium was the, was the publisher. Um, mm-hmm. Eric was the, was the designer. But Palladium used to, I don't know if they still do, pay royalties to their designers, which is a freelance is, is an extraordinary thing if mm-hmm. the book you're working on is going to be a hit. But Eric went off on his own and did set up a company called Phage Press and did the Amber Diceless role-playing game. It was the first diceless role-playing game, as the name suggests. But the character generation is brilliant. And this is what I was coming around to. Because you're playing this family, you're all interrelated. You've got to work together on a number of things. But one of you is probably working against everyone else and you all hate each other anyway. Mm-hmm. So the character generation system, you start off with a pool of points and basically you put up an attribute. I forget exactly what the attributes are. Let's say strength. And everyone bids to be highest in it. It's not about the number of points. It's about who's got the most. That's what you're bidding for. You're bidding for the supremacy levels in the different attributes. And it's so smart because you end up with these facts. Everyone knows what everyone else's scores are because you've all been very present within all the characters' character generations. But at the same time, you hate the guy who pipped you at the post to get the highest intelligence. And you feel superior to the person who, you know, you beat out for dexterity. It's it's a fun character generation system. And this is something, and we were meant to be talking about character generation. So how fortuitous we should come around to this. I've been playing a bunch of games recently because I do this podcast with Greg Stolze and Ross Payton. And we basically, every episode in Ludonarrative Dissidents, we basically do a deep dive from a design perspective on one role-playing game. We take it apart. We look at how it works. We look at how people play it, which means I've been playing a lot of different role-playing games and different types of role-playing games. And more and more, I find character generation is a bit of a chore. It's fun creatively because you're creating a character, but it's not an entertaining game. It doesn't feel like you're participating. You're quite often not participating with other players. You're just either rolling stuff or allocating points to stuff. And you don't really know why yet. You're shaping this character. You're creating something that's going to go out into a world that you know something about, but you don't know the adventure Mm -hmm. that you're going to go on. 
And you mentioned you're, you're working on a novel. You do not start a novel by spending two or three pages describing the central character. That's just not... you. And, and if you do, you describe them through their actions, through what they do, not who they are. There's a whole thing in, in screenwriting, quite hackney script screenwriting. There's a book, in fact, called Save the Cat. The idea of defining your central character in the first five minutes by have them not just do the good thing, but do the better thing. So, you know, the hero runs into the blazing building and brings out the child and then runs back in and saves the cat and brings the cat out as well. And you go, yeah, this is the good guy. We're rooting for this character for the rest of the movie. Um, I've not seen a role-playing game define characters through actions. I mean, there are, actually, no, I have. I've seen one or two. There are some that take you on kind of story paths or life paths. There are a few that essentially use kind of solo adventures to create mm -hmm. your character, which is really smart. But so many out there, and, and this includes some of the big names like Call of Cthulhu as well, and and D D, character generation is fundamentally either you're rolling dice or you're allocating points. You don't know why. You're, you've got an idea for a character, but not much more than that. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. It feels like the rest of role-playing design has moved on in so many interesting places. Yeah. But yeah, it's so I'm interested in, in, in your perspective. Have you come across any character generation systems that you think are, are really, you know, really kind of push it from a fictional point of view as well, creating interesting characters within the setting or within the group of other characters? There's two games that immediately came to mind. One I'm not a huge fan of, but I like the concept of is Steihander's um, completely random character creation. Like you can literally roll everything. Wow. from start to finish and like have no say whatsoever on how char your character is going to be created which makes some interesting choices though I, there are some things on there that I wish they didn't have like race and things like that that are options mm. but I like the concept of the completely randomization of it yeah. because it can well, make some very questionable but curious combinations of characters yes Murkborg does that as well um it's into almost entirely random including character facets and stuff like that but you start off randomly generating your equipment before you've created any of your attributes or anything else you work out what you've what stuff you've got which is quirky um yeah sure it works anyway sorry you were you were saying no you're fine uh the other game that i really like is uh that Create some interesting characters is Fiasco because. Oh, Fiasco is a masterpiece. So, for my birthday, well, so a couple of months ago, we played Fiasco Dresden Files, which is a. Someone took Fiasco and made a Dresden Files version. For those who don't know what Dresden Files is, it's a 17 book series with lots of side stories made by Jim Butcher. And it's a fantastic urban fantasy novel following a wizard named Harry Dresden in Chicago, modern day Chicago. So in this world, in Fiasco, you roll a bunch of dice and then you pick the dice and that determines what section you read and then somebody else picks a dice and determines what you fall under that category. So you get to, it's it's random, but you have a little bit more control, but it, it creates some very intriguing combination of characters. So in the first game that we played of it, I played a character who had a warden. It was a warden in their, I forget what the title is, but basically their prisoner, like the person that they're watching. And I was the person, and we had to decide who was who. So I decided that I was the person that was being watched and my friend was the warden. Then the next time I, the next one I got, I got werewolves. So I was part of a werewolf pact. Now, for those who don't understand the Dresden Files, biggest thing is that wardens and wizards don't have control over the supernatural. So as soon as that came up, the warden 
in the prior discussion no longer had power over my character. Wow. But they still thought they did or still had to act the part despite this, which made a very intriguing combination of my character purposely doing things to be like, what are you going to do about it? So he like come in to check on like do like the daily probation officer type of thing. And he's like, have you done anything wrong? It's like, well, you know, the one guy was being kind of slimy. So I turned him into a toad. He's just like, oh, my God, please tell me you're joking. Well, he got better. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I'm going to have to do something. I'm like, you can't do anything about it. What are you going to do? Mm. And he Brilliant. knew like this was a punishment for him to like to like do that. So it changes the dynamic of it. And then ultimately when the the third, the fourth player came to join. We randomly rolled because they joined late and we got vampire family. So I was a wizard that became a werewolf that was adopted into a vampire family <laughs> <laughs> wow. before I became a werewolf. So it was just a hot mess. <laughs> it's it's like the whole of the, the white wolf product line as as was rolled into one. All you need yep. some fairies in there as well. And I think there are mummies. And, yeah, and it makes... Done. It just makes some interesting combinations. Like when we played it the second time for my birthday, we, cause they're like, what do you want to do for your birthday? I was like, I want to play Dresden Files, obviously. Like, let's do this. Like, we got to play that again. Come on. So we streamed it. And cool. this time, and we got again Werewolf Pack. And I had a Friends with Benefits in this one. So the, it, like, it ended up being the Friends with Benefits was taking advantage of the situation to get access to my magic things that I had to go bring out the sorceress or something and it was just chaos it was chaotic as fuck mm -hmm. but it was it was just really funny and like as the dice determined what happened and you you ran out of dice like does this go good or bad for them you like slowly ran out of dice to give people and had to like keep okay we only have one more bad die so this <laughs> has to be good because like we have three more rounds <laughs> so what what are we going to do yeah. so i like that character creation mechanic a lot yeah, no, Fiasco is really, really lovely. Jason Morningstar's an amazing designer. So many fresh ideas. Another one I like is Wander Home. Have you played Wander yeah. Home? Oh, I've not played it. I really want to. I love the book. I think it's, you know, just the, the, the atmosphere of the book itself, let alone, the, you know, one imagines how it's going to be in, in play. And my kids are quite up for it. It's just, it's yes. finding the time to do it. It's an adorable game. I played a stream of it on Chaotic Wonderful. And we did four sessions of it. And I played the ragamuffin, which is like the youngest little one yes. of the group. So I played a nine-year-old. And the way character creation works for that is it asks you, like, it says, choose a name and some pronouns. Like, that's the first question it asks. And then choose an animal. And it gives you some options. But then it also gives you, like, a cute animal or a young animal for, like, the ragamuffin. <laughs> so I picked a gecko. And then you choose two that you are and two you refuse to be. And it gives you nine options to pick from so i picked uh she they refused to be a boy or a girl so they went by they them mm -hmm. and they were adorable and smart i believe then you choose three to describe your look three to four and they give you a bunch of options so like the one one of them that i picked was a poking stick which was just literally what it sounds like it's a stick that and she poked they poke things with you poke stuff with it and then choose two life lessons you've been taught and two you've rejected, mm -hmm. which is where you start to get into like the sad aspect of Wanderhome. Like Wanderhome is a game where you're in a world that bad things aren't happening anymore, but everybody has a sad story in their past. Mm -hmm. So you play on those memories a lot in the game. So for my character, they were taught that the world is bigger than they can wrap their head around, but even that this will end. So that I picked a good and a bad one for each. 
yeah. but they rejected that their parents made who they are because they were an orphan mm-hmm. and they also rejected that all stories are lies. So they believe all stories come from a source of truth. Mm. Um, Interesting. And then finally you choose one you carry openly and one you carry secretly and you tell the table about them. So openly she had dreams about a vast and bloody war always sent around a powerful hero, which she shared with, she would share mm. when they had those nightmares. But secretly they had a luminescent God that people thought were, were their imaginary friend named Mac. Oh. And there was one point, because the way the game works once you're playing is you gain tokens by doing particular things, and then you can use those tokens to save other people or to help people or help yourself. So one of the ragamuffin moves is asking someone, do you want to see something cool? And if they say yes, and you show it to them, then you get a token. Mm -hmm. So at one point, this adorable spot happened where... Knack was light, like warming up against my character's back and was shaking. And we were about to go into a shrine. So my character, Echo the Gecko, <laughs> was like, what's wrong? And he only could answer yes or no, we decided. And he like would flash once for yes, twice for no. And it, de- it was determined that Knack was scared to go into the shrine. So nice. my character went to the guardian, who was uh, a wolf, and said, Knack is scared and doesn't want to go into the shrine. Is it okay if we stay out here? And of course, the guardian being an adult is like, oh, well, Knack is your imaginary friend. Therefore, you're scared. Of course, we could stay out here. If you're scared to go inside, it's okay to be scared, though. And they're like, well, you don't have to stay with me. Like, I could stay out here by myself. They're like, no, we're not leaving a nine-year-old by themselves. Like, I'll stay out here (laughs) with you. What am I going to do? Nothing. Just go steal some donuts. God, come on. So... He then pulls her, pulls them aside and was like, you know, it's okay to admit that you're scared. It's like, well, I'm not scared. Knack is scared. And they're like, Knack is your imaginary friend. It's like, no, do you want to see something cool? (laughs) And they're like, yeah, okay, sure. And then they convince Knack to come out of hiding. And then the guardian is just like, the fuck is in front of me? This glowing blue (laughs) Navi orb of thing is glowing in front of me. What is this? This is Knack. I told you. (laughs) Like, wow. what are you, what would you, what do you prefer? Do you prefer deity or God? God. He prefers God. Wow. <laughs> and they're just like, you have a God just floating around behind you. Wow. Well, yeah. It's like, it, it reminds me of the, the story of, I forget which poor, unfortunate woman it was that Zeus had seduced, you know, saying, so I'm, I'm Zeus. And someone, I think it was one of the goddesses came to her and goes, no, you he, ask him to prove it. Ask him to arrive in all his glory. So the next time she says, yeah, the next time you come to me, come in all your glory. And of course, Zeus in all his glory just immolates her. She is, evaporates pretty much from the heat of his presence uh, and is utterly destroyed by it. But yeah, that, that kind of, I love, do you want to see something cool? That's that's lovely. But this, I mean, back, back to character generation there, I love the way that the, the elements you've put together there. I mean, one of the things I love about modern games, modern indie games, is they do give you that freedom in general, structured freedom within character generation to create some really interesting things. And I think you as a creative person and, and you know, as someone who, who writes, you're able to put to just come up with ideas that quickly form a really coherent and interesting character. I do worry, and I've got kids, so I've seen this happen, that you put those kind of choices in front of, you know, basically asking them to come up with secrets or character facets 
And some of them rise to the occasion and some just freeze. And not just kids as well. Adults who, who don't believe they're creative because they've been told they're not creative or they've been told that creativity is a childish thing, which I hate absolutely. But freedom within character generation is, is wonderful if it's done right, if it's if it's structured right, if people are given the right cues and the right opportunities to, to jump or occasionally you know, there's always a need for a roll on table for someone who genuinely can't come up with an idea. Okay, here's six options. Maybe choose one, maybe roll a, a die. Well, this uh, one did provide you with X amount of options. So you could, uh, you could technically, if you wanted to, if you were having difficulty choosing from those, you could roll a die. Because uh, they're like, on the one that had nine options, you can roll a d10. If you roll a 10, roll again. Oh, cool. It's been a little while since I read Wonder. I read so many role-playing games. You know, you're days. fine. You're fine. My favorite my favorite one, the only one that actually required you to actually do any thought process was the last question, which is if you're at a table, it's supposed to be to your left and your right. But you pick a question and you ask the person to your right or your left mm. that question and they have to answer it. And you like discuss with each other to make sure you're on the same page and okay with it. But like my character asked the guardian to their right how do you feel that my character considers you their father figure now? Oh, that's nice. And then like the other yeah. one to the left was more goofy with what is the most annoying thing that my character does that drives you up the wall? And they mm. said, it's the damn poking stick. And then <laughs> I decided that because cat, they were playing a cat, cat's tail swish really fast when they get annoyed. Uh, so my character yep. would try to tap the, you know, the game where you like do the yep. knife between the fingers. It was like that, but with a poking stick and a tail. Mm -hmm. And... They would try to like poke the tail and like tap around it. And as the person got more annoyed, the tail got faster. So it got harder. So it just became <laughs> more fun for the gecko. Oh, <laughs> They're just brilliant. like, that damn poking stick. I hate the damn poking stick. Mm. I love that where characters ask ask each other questions or occasionally have input into each other's character generation. I did a game a, a few years ago called Alas Vegas. It's a it's an amnesia game. You start up your character starts off with no memories. Mm -hmm. So your character sheet at the start of the game is literally blank. You don't even have a name. Mm -hmm. You all it's the game begins. You all dig yourselves out of a shallow grave in the desert at midnight. You are all naked. None of you can remember anything. So you start off basically describing what the other characters can see, what you look like, mm -hmm. and then the character to your left adds one thing to it, the thing you've forgotten about yourself or that you, mm. you don't realize, like the, the massive tattoo on your back or your gold teeth or, you know, you're missing your little finger on something like that. And I was pleased when I came up with it, but it worked so well in, in playtest. I was really, really happy. That sounds like a lot of fun, um, especially if you trust the people that you're with and you have a way to veto it or bounce off ideas. With yes. Yeah, there was. You, you had a veto as well. Because I would hate if there wasn't a veto and you're like, yeah, you you have like X wrong with you. And you're just like, what? Yeah. No. I, I did uh, another game. Well, actually, it was a, a game that never came out, but I stole the character generation from it for the Paranoia reboot that Mongoose kickstarted a few years ago. They do, they've just done or they're just doing another Paranoia reboot. And Paranoia, for those who don't know, it came out in 1984 and it's the... It's the game of being stuck in a nuclear bunker the size of a city forever. You are, in fact, several generations down the line, and the computer that's in charge of it is insane and paranoid. Um, and it's a, it's a slapstick horror game. Completely brilliant. And anyway, it had been around for, I 
was I was given the design job what it must uh 20 mid 2010s so the game was 30 years old at that point and it was there was a lot of accumulated craft so I said I'm not going to just do a new edition I will reboot it and I did this with um with Grant Howitt as a co-designer and Paul Dean who was part of the shut up and sit down crew and is now I think writing a novel anyway brilliant brilliant designers but the character generation in that was on your turn you picked an ab- you know, from a skill list, you picked the skill that you were good, really good at, and the player to your left, as I recall, was automatically really bad at it, mm. and therefore disliked you intensely. And they, and you go around the circle. They then pick one to be good at. The player next to them is therefore really bad at it. So you're affecting each other. But again, you've got this group that at least you're not necessarily a coherent group who like each other, but you've got this interrelationship and a reason to dislike each other. And paranoia is very much a game of shooting each other in the back or accusing mm-hmm. each other of being traitors or terrorists or, or just generally bad people so that the computer will order them executed and you get points as a result. So to start the game with those relationships in place, which is what the character generation system was, was there for. And it's just a spin on that, that same idea of, of, of you know, asking players to give you something else or to take, in this case, take something away from you. I would love to see so much more of that. It's got so much opportunity compared to Mortboard or Call of Cthulhu or something where you just, you know, you roll a few dice, you allocate some points. So there's actually a game that I played called uh, Shadow Over Soul. And it's an indie game. It's an indie game. And you are given, when we played it, we were given character sheets that were predetermined. We could pick our name. Mm But we all woke up and we were in a spaceship on our way to a particular planet. And we all wake up from chrono sleep. And my character particularly woke up earlier than everybody else. And I was given one thing that I knew. And as you woke up from your sleep, as time progressed, you remembered things about your character. So you would play the game and make you would make these allies or you would do these things. And then you would remember something that would be like, oh, fuck, okay, that changes everything. So there was a scene, a portion of it, where my character's goal was to wake up early to change the trajectory of the ship to Mars so that the ship could be stolen by a different group. And it was whatever Mars place that she worked for versus the other side. (laughs) My character made an allyship with another person who was, I believe, a known killer. Like, everybody had something bad that they were doing. Like, nobody was a good person in this game. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he agreed to be my ally, he remembered his one rule was do not choose sides. <laughs> was this predetermined by the GM or by the, something the player just came up with? It was in the, or by well, the scenario. In character sheet. So I think it was ah, part of okay. the book um, itself. The, like, I think you could make your own rules mm-hmm. and your own character sheets. So I don't know if it's like... I don't know if the character sheets were like, this is the book and this is the story that you have to do, or if it was like the person who created the game came up with it for our particular game. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure you could make your own up each time because there was like, there was a person who was trying to kill, like there was a person who was the, was a serial killer. Mm-hmm. who was like a face stealer and basically became the other person. Wow. There was a person who was trying to find that person. And then there was my character trying to steal everything like the ship and had nothing to do with anything else. And this other person who's like trying to just make a lot of money by screwing over the original company or something like that. So like it ended with like two of us winning because we 
and there's also a monster the entire time on the like on the <laughs> ship too so there's just like you have to work together but you also need to be against each other and it's a lot of back and forth like that so it was a very fun game especially as you slowly remembered things about your character mm-hmm. i love amnesia's type of stories because like one if if your dm knows the full story then they can slowly just drop little hints here and there so like i played an amnesiac character who thought that she was a this was a D game who thought that she was a servant to this rich lord and when he died she stole his bag and, and left but for some reason there was a suit and armor and stuff that fit her perfectly that was in his bag which was really weird but whatever it's mm-hmm. magic clothes so i guess yeah. that's why slow like i knew the backstory secretly she was the daughter of the same person's father but she hit her head and he took advantage of the situation and Uh, lied to her saying no you're a servant so that's what she believed for like the last year and mm. she was actually like a cler a blood cleric that worshipped this was in frost maiden so she worshipped the the frost maiden god who was causing this gigantic snowstorm that everybody despised and her hints were like she kept finding little blood vials in random places and having flashbacks that she Mm. was here before but she doesn't know why she was here before and only one person on the team like recognizes her but they recognize her on a first name basis as drinking buddies and never knew who she was as a family (laughs) so if we would have continued that game eventually she would have like found her father and like had to fight her father and if she remembered who he was and he would have been like why are you on this side and she's like what are you talking about and suddenly like dawns on her like oh you're my dad shit like wow my bad i didn't know that that was a thing that's great. And Las Vegas has a flashback mechanic as as well, because you because you know, you've got to start off you start getting memories from somewhere. But it works differently. It's very player led. The idea is that any time in the game you need an ability, you're in a situation where you go, I need to be able to pick this lock. I need to be able to fire a gun at this guy who's who's, you know, approaching me with menaces. You can remember it. Suddenly you remember the skill and you can do the thing. But you get a flashback of you using that skill in your previous life. So, and you create the flashback. You describe to the group what the flashback is. There's also it's um, it doesn't use dice. It uses, uses tarot cards. You play blackjack with tarot cards, and every character has a signifier. Every time your signifier comes up in play, the GM gives you a flashback. And sometimes those flashbacks will involve other characters, and other characters in particular situations can give you flashbacks as well. Of that, of you and them doing something. So the group comes together, it, and it becomes clear. Two things become clear. First of all, you were a group. You were working together on stuff. You knew each other really well. And secondly, because it's a role playing game, because you tend to be doing stuff that's a bit skeevy and a bit kind of borderline and, and crossing the law. In your previous lives, you were clearly not nice people. You were doing a lot of bad. That's all your memories of are of you doing dodgy things. Mm-hmm. So you were not nice. And this feeds into the, the rest of the game. So the game, the main narrative is almost entirely pre-written. The player creation stuff is of creating the backstory and the interlinks between the different characters. And then there's a midpoint. Literally, it's a four-session game, end of session two. Everything comes together and it's, oh, okay, now we understand where we are how we got here, and mm-hmm. just how completely fucked we are. 
And I'm it's probably the best piece of design work I've ever done. I'm intent the whole thing, the mechanics and the narrative just works together so nicely. And it's it's really sweet. I will send you a PDF. On that note, we've been talking for just a little over an hour in tennis. Like I said, I can wing three hours. I used to be a university lecturer. Perfectly. I mean, I <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, it is. It's getting quite late. I'm in the UK. If you can't yeah. tell from my my accent, I'm in, actually in London, so it's quite late here. Yes. So, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? Ooh, all, all over the place. There's the podcast. The first podcast, Ludo Narrative Dissidents, not Dissonance, Dissidents. That's on Anchor with Ross Payton and Greg Stolze talking about role playing games. I have another podcast called Everybody Wins, which is promoting my new book, which is also called Everybody Wins. That's uh, The podcast is six episodes. The book is 200 and something pages, and it's a big, chunky hardback about the how modern board games got to be as good and as popular as, as they are now. Mm-hmm. That will be out in the US and Canada in early March. I have some of my games up on drive-through through Magnum Opus Press, which is my own imprint. The two main ones, Alas Vegas, which I mentioned, and The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is a single-session, rules-light, very silly storytelling game, which originally came out in 1998, using, as you said, copyright-free artwork, actually artwork by the, the 19th century artist Gustave Doré. Um, and the third edition was actually published by Fantasy Flight with all new full color art by fantastic Hungarian artist, uh, which I now own the rights to. So that's if you if you get that on on drive through, that's the beautiful edition you'll be getting. I know I'm in some other places online, and I can't think what they are offhand. And I can't tell you what I'm working on at the moment. I this is a mad teaser. I appear to be involved in what I've been in the games industry about 40 years now. I started in my mid-teens with fanzines. I am currently involved in the maddest design project I have ever encountered in at any level of gaming. I've encountered some pretty mad ones. This is genuinely insane and i think it will be newsworthy when it i mean not just within the the little bubble of gaming i think it may be kind of generally newsworthy if it actually happens which i currently give about an eight percent chance to and i wish i could tell you more but my my non-disclosure agreement is about as thick as my little little finger which gives gives you an idea of the, the size of the people i'm dealing with on this one perfectly understandable Yes. So I may, you know, no, I think that'll cover it. I could just, I could witter on about things I've done in the past, but that's, that's the main ones. Hopefully by the time this episode goes out, uh, which is March 6th, I believe, you can have more details about the super secret project, maybe um, on Twitter, maybe, or mm-hmm. like wherever. Oh, and- I'm, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, of course, at James Wallace. I'm on Mastodon at James Wallace at dice.camp. I'm on the web. So search for James Wallace. As many links as we can will be in the description box down below. So go check those out and give some love and check out the book to help support that as well. If you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at Beholder to No One or any other social media site at Beholder to No One that I am not really active on, but you can find me there. You can find me here probably also on Tabletop Dynamics by now, that's D-I-E Dynamics, which will have once a month episodes, so check that out. Hopefully by this, at this point, actually this week, I believe, this Friday at the part of this release, it should be the second half of Monster of the Week Weird Web on 2000 Tales Roleplaying starting up. So go check out the second half of season four, which will be streaming at 9 p.m. Eastern on 2000 Tales Roleplaying on YouTube. And then on Tuesdays, you can find me in a masks game, also on 2000 Tales Roleplaying on YouTube. And 
If everything goes as planned, you should be seeing something on Chaotic Wonderful by now of a particular Renegade and Paragon game that I am super excited to start, but I am still working on details in January at the time of recording this, so go check that out. If you haven't, go follow Chaotic Wonderful and look for details if it's not up already. I'm probably in other things. Look at Twitter. I'm a busy person. <laughs> Less busy than I was. But still busy. But that's all for us today, so keep being awesome. We'll see you next time. Bye! Hey, before you go, I just wanted to let you know that this episode was edited by Matt over at Walsh Animation. They are part of the Table Party podcast, and I wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to them, especially because Matt has been such a freaking lifesaver when it comes to editing the discussion episodes recently. So please listen to this ad for Table Party podcast, and go check them out and make sure you give them some love. Thanks! What makes Table Party different from other tabletop podcasts? The music. The setting. The characters. The gore. A bunch of different games. The refreshing coldness of ice cream. The 300-foot-tall squid named Delilah. The dice rolls. The horrifying body horror. The aroma. The suffering of my players. Dairy Queen blizzards. The luxurious plush texture. The free coupons. Bad decisions. And who can we expect? I'm Kelsey. I'm Matt. I'm Gabe. I'm Walsh. I'm Chris. Welcome to the table party. 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 Welcome to the table party.